Welcome to Revel Revel. This is Lauren Gravel, the host and creator of Revel Revel, where we talk about your life stories. Today, I have Annette Aldrich, who is famous in the local Conifer 285 area for being an all-around awesome person. And you don't get to meet too many of those anymore, so I hope you enjoy just benefiting from her life and her perspective. If I had to sum up Annette in just a few key words, I would say kind, sweet, and a survivor. Annette has stories galore. There's way more to this person than what you're going to hear today. And I hope that one day she'll come back for round two. So please enjoy. And as always, please check our website for all of the information that she is citing throughout. You'll get lots of links on cancer survivor, traumatic brain injury survivor, and other interesting things. Well, hello, Annette Aldrich. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Lauren. Thank you for having me. So you are my first local person. You're my third guest in total and the first local. Uh, and you were the first one to reply saying, yes! <laughs> Typical for me. <laughs> yeah. So we'll come back to the theme in a second, but let's first talk about how we know each other. I'd love to hear it from your perspective. My perspective, Lauren was everywhere. <laughs> Her perspective is probably Annette was everywhere. I don't know. I've heard, I've heard both. But uh, yeah, through the uh, community events in the Conifer Chamber. And both of our jobs and organizations were associated with that. And you volunteered a lot. I volunteered a lot. I like to jump in and figure out what I, how I could help. And so I kept seeing you everywhere. <laughs> so what's your first memory of us actually getting to know each other or, you know, oh, wow. more than just across the room or something? Well, I have been hit on the head, so I could use that excuse. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of a major hit on the head, but another story. Um, probably chamber breakfasts, because that's on a regular basis, but I would always talk to you at chamber breakfasts. And then I talked to you a lot when you um, had in or out and humane at Elevation celebration, the first time that I was there for the entire event. And uh, I could see your love of puppies and animals and people. And uh, of course, we have that in common. Definitely in that order, too. <laughs> <laughs> Probably have that in common. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so going back to how we first met. Yeah, I like how you put about how I was everywhere, how you were everywhere, because yeah. I feel like you were one of the first people that I recognized, remembered face and name together, liked your energy as a, you know, as a person. Were you an ambassador back then? Maybe Un unofficially, but I just kind of was at every single chamber event and meeting everywhere that I possibly could cram into my schedule, but I was just trying to get to know everyone. I guess Mel later, later Melanie and Betsy both said, you know, we need to really make you an official ambassador. And then I ended up being invited to join the board. So I just skipped ambassador and went right to the board. In hindsight, I probably should have done ambassador and then the board. But as long as I don't have multiple board of directors, then I feel like I can really give 100%. But when I was on that particular board, I was also on two other boards. And that's too much. 
Well, I would agree. And I would say that in my experience, it's always best to take some lower position before jumping into the board. It never works out. They're too desperate, needy, and there's obviously challenges that a newbie should not be tackling, in my opinion. I think part of their request was that they actually knew I had experience being on a board of directors, but in hindsight, but isn't hindsight wonderful? In mm. hindsight, I should I took on too much, but at the same time, I learned a great life lesson. I'm learning over the years to be able to say no and not feel mm. guilty about it because I still have a passion to get involved and help and I can instantly see, oh, I could do that, I could do that, that would really help them. And I have to sit back and go, okay, entire picture, do I have the time? Can I give 100% or would it impact me and the rest of my life negatively? So Right. So where do you think that comes from? And have you always been that way? Like, was little girl Annette the same way? What was she like versus the Annette that I know? Actually, elementary school aged and younger, I was interested in everything and I still am but so shy that if I could go back in time I would smack myself it's pain it's just painful <laughs> but I was painfully shy and I've looked back and about the age of 19 I believe overnight boom I went from painfully shy to extreme extrovert in how I approach people and interact with people and i've always interacted with the animals so i just jump right in somebody will have some you know trained guard dog and i'll just be on on the floor going hey puppy you know but oh gosh as a child i was so incredibly shy and i was in a play in fifth grade and i had memorized just in the practices i had memorized my lines and the lines of everyone else on stage so when we actually had the play, the, I think two nights, maybe a Friday night and Saturday night or something for the parents, I cued the other people on stage. They would get stuck and I would just say, this is the next line. And I didn't have a problem delivering lines on stage, but if I was just in a room of people, I would be mortified to go up and just say hi to someone. So I don't know why the shift, but I, I just shifted. I guess I figured I was missing out on a lot in life because I was afraid to go ask. And in fifth grade, I wanted to be a safety patrol. That was like the creme de la creme, the most awesome thing. You got to wear the fluorescent orange belt with the cool badge on it. Yay. And uh, we just, you know, we revered them. This was, you know, the ultimate <laughs> in fifth grade. And when the teachers all chose, they didn't choose me. And I was absolutely devastated oh i was so devastated i don't know how long i cried i finally got the i guess enough well mrs west was really nice so i finally finally got the courage to ask mrs west why and she said honey we t your name came up so many times but we all said you're just so shy you couldn't be assertive enough to be a safety patrol and i think that probably planted a seed in the back of my mind. I don't remember anything in particular between fifth grade and turning 19 that I kept thinking, oh, remember the safety patrol? No, but I think it did have an impact now that it's hindsight. But how, what 
happen though? I mean, how do you go from overnight being shy to extrovert? What, what was going on in your life when you were 19? And like, where were you physically, mentally, emotionally, all that? Like, I want to hear how that happens. Yeah, 19, I was, I was still in Florida where I was born. I was in college in my undergrad. And I think I just began to get self-confidence. I don't know why. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't a complete straight A student. I wasn't some incredible, I don't know, brilliant mind that every, I was no Stephen Hawking, you know, <laughs> but um, I just started to get more confidence, I guess. And also going to college, I think you see there's a bigger world out there and I didn't want to miss out on it, but I went to my second undergraduate school in Florida had a huge population that was uh, international. So I was meeting people from all over the world and I had never had that opportunity. I had never been able to travel beyond the Yucatan Peninsula and you know, Gulf of Mexico and Jamaica, Grand Cayman, a lot of islands around there. But I never went across the pond. I'd never been to Australia or New Zealand, but I met lots of people from Asia. And I actually had, I had so many interactions with them, made so many friends, talked about their culture, learned a lot. And they were from all different places. And most people would look at an Asian, at least back then, and they would just say, oh, they're Asian. And I'm like, well, yes, but I got to where I could distinguish Cambodian, Korean, Laotian, Filipino, if you throw them in there, Thai, Taiwanese. I, I could just look at them. I could see their movements, the way they interacted with others and the, you know, their facial structure and how they carried themselves. And I could just, I could just say, oh, they're Japanese. Oh, they're Chinese or they're from Northern China. They're from Southern China, whatever. And so maybe meeting a lot of people who were not from Florida, let alone the United States, I helped them a lot. They asked questions about our culture. They asked a lot of questions about the college. They were going to, they were studying not in their first language. So I guess it gave me an opportunity to answer a lot of their questions, made me feel helpful and confident. Maybe I thought, wow, this is kind of nice interacting with people. I can actually help them and I can learn and exchange. So looking back that way, Maybe that's why, but it was a unique environment, was not a typical college, wasn't a party college. It was an engineering school full of nerds, geeks, whatever. What school was it? It was Florida Tech in Melbourne, Florida. And I had also gone to um, Ball State in Muncie, Indiana. Ball State was not quite the giant party school that was reserved for Indianapolis but uh, which was our rival, yuck. Florida Tech uh, had a lot of local people, but it, it really catered to international students who were here, here to learn engineering. And at the time we had a lot of people from Iran and Iraq, and I made quite a few friends like Mishala Ibrahimian. And he, he was a wonderful human being, brilliant man. And he desperately wanted to marry me or Shirley Cottrell or any other of his friends, platonically, he, was, he would explain it. He goes, I 
you know, nothing. We can live on opposite ends of the globe. I don't care. I just want to get my U.S. citizenship because if I go back to Iran, I am required to be in the Iranian army for uh, three to five years or something like that. But the average lifespan in the Iranian army was well under six months at that time. So the country of Iran at the time and Iraq they were sending their now their biggest and brightest over to America and to the UK and to wherever and having them educated all the way up through doctoral thesis and bringing them back to the country and having them killed off. I mean, logically, that's ridiculous, but that was the time. But I made a lot of friends who were living that and it was really interesting. It made me very grateful for being in a country that at the time was at peace. <laughs> yeah. Why did you go to Indiana and then back to Florida? I, when I was in high school, I was invited to do a program that now, fortunately, has continued and it's quite common. But they, when I was 15, they pre screened, I have no idea how, decided to send people, certain students, to a college, several of the colleges that I guess they had an association with for a year to actually take college level classes. And instead of my high school classes counting toward my college academia, my college academia counted toward my high school graduation. So I went to Muncie for a year and lived in a dorm and walked everywhere because I was too young to drive and uh, had a great had a lot of great experiences there and we went over to in indianapolis several times and checked out their campus just as part of a part of the program of introducing people to you know life outside muncie because muncie is not an enormous metropolis but it was larger than melbourne florida which is where florida tech is and then i came back and by then my high school had decided that i could go to local colleges if i wanted to local colleges and universities and do the same thing So I was required to take one class on campus at the high school, Melbourne High School, famous for being the same high school that Jim Morrison of the Doors went to. Then I came came back and I took one class, I guess per semester at the high school. And then I took the rest of my classes at Florida Tech and Brevard Community College. And I got to jump on my college academic career there and managed to get my, uh, a a double bachelor's really quickly because I was doing it in parallel with high school. And now it's a common practice and I think it's great because there are some students that that's a perfect a perfect solution for them. They're so bored with what is going on in high school or they've gone beyond so many of the classes and they're still wanting that education. They're just like a sponge, just like a small child. They want to soak it up. Why tell them to put it on hold for two or three years By then, they're bored, they get in trouble, they may not even graduate. I mean, that's the extreme, but I've seen it happen. So it's like, it's great because now it's kind of a menu. When you're in high school there, and a lot of other high schools, two, three, three of my children did the same thing. They went to, they took college classes while in high school, it counted for both. They took college classes in the high school. Anyway, that that was how I ended up having a not typical high school college experience there but i really enjoyed ball state that that is where i got the complete living in a dorm yelling at somebody because 
they pulled your clothes out of the dryer when they were still wet because they wanted to use your quarters and they wanted the dryer then. I got all of those lovely experiences without the drunken debauched parties because 15 is a little too young in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. We're back. And I want to ask you about the theme. You know, when you first read the theme, what did you think of? Like what came to mind? Wow. A lot. I have a lot of things tattooed on my arm that are the ones that jump to mind and that people would probably relate to is I've had cancer twice and almost didn't make it both times. And I've had a severe accident with a quadruple traumatic brain injury that I was not only unexpected to live, I was supposed to die, apparently, according to the neurologists. And I, uh, I'm still recovering from it. And I actually did a major breakthrough last week. My neurologist told me when he released me from aftercare after my accident and the stay in the hospital that I'm, although I learned how to walk and I got my balance and I regained the ability to speak, thank God, because I love to talk, as you can probably (laughs) tell. He said, I may not ever be able to ride a bike, which is kind of funny because everyone's heard the proverbial, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's like riding a bike. You never forget. Well, you may never forget unless your head gets whacked. (laughs) And uh, we had great weather. I got out my bicycle. I had taken my bicycle to the local bike shop the summer before, before my accident, actually. And I had it, I had all the uh, gears checked and I had the derailleur and I had it completely overhauled just to tune up because partially because my ex-husband offered to do it for me. And I figured that he would set it to where I would die or something. It was, I was kind of frightened. So, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, he, he claims to know what he's doing in a lot of things and I didn't trust him. Okay. But I got my bike. I found my helmet because I am very much an advocate for wearing helmets during sporting activities or anytime you could fall off a cliff. I'll probably hike my next 14er wearing a motorcycle helmet. But uh I got I got the bike out and I looked down and the bike shop had left it in 24th gear. Well, the last time I was avidly riding my bike. I was training for another half marathon and I could usually do 16 or 18th gear going out of my driveway on a fairly steep uphill. And I, but I looked down and I said, no, I don't think so. Well, I went to change the gears and I had the left thumb. I had the right thumb and I went, Hmm, I can't remember how to change, which one goes does index finger and thumb go, which goes up, which goes down. And that was just part, it was like driving. It was like, quote, riding a bike. And I couldn't remember. And I actually had to look down at the sprockets and the chain to figure out which way to do it. And fortunately, I figured it out and I went up the driveway in like 10th gear or something. And the first half a mile, I was having to concentrate on keeping the bike upright and get comfortable with it, toggle up and down on the gears. But by the time I'd done, I don't know, five or six miles and came back, it was completely back. That's awesome. It was amazing that when I first pushed off going up the driveway, 
there was a split second of, oh my God, I'm going to crash on a bike at my age. Holy cow. But I did it. And then when I came back, I felt so accomplished because I felt like telling my neurologist, he said, it would probably take me five years to get to where I could do it again, if ever. And I felt like calling him up and saying, I did it, I did it, yay! And uh, I go, such a small thing, but when you're not expected to speak, move, walk, talk, anything, riding a bike was huge. So I'm wondering what else is out there that I'm going to notice a difference. But I got it back, and now it's snowed afoot, and I can't bike for a while, unless I go buy a fat tire. So you said the first thing that came to mind were your tattoos. Would you mind telling everybody what they say? I actually designed the tattoo in progressive care and in the hospital after my accident. My accident was I fell two stories through a deck, my own personal deck, which was falling down and due to be replaced the next day. I designed it while I was in the hospital, but I knew that I had had traumatic brain injuries, so I didn't I waited until my three-month anniversary of my accident to actually go have the the tattoo done because I wanted to make sure I was in my right mind. (laughs) But knowing I had had, I had survived cancer twice in 2008 and 2009, and then I survived the traumatic brain injury in 2018, I designed it a cursive word miracles going up my right arm. And the M is made out of two breast cancer ribbons to make an M. And the L is a green ribbon and green represents traumatic brain injury. And I thought when I was in the hospital, because I didn't have any access to a laptop or a phone to Google anything, because I was not allowed to even watch television or any listen to music or anything for quite some time while my, my synapses were regenerating. But uh, I thought, Oh, well, pink is for breast cancer. Turquoise is for ovarian. I knew several other, but I thought, well, okay, this is brain injury. Okay, your brain is gray matter. Is it a gray ribbon? And come to find out when my daughter Googled it for me, traumatic brain injury is kind of a Kelly green, forest or Kelly green. I don't have any idea why they decided that, but now I have a miracles going up my arm and it's on the inside of my arm. So when I am at a meeting and I meet someone and I reach out to shake their hand, they can usually see it and a lot of people comment on it. And then that opens a dialogue about a lot of things. And I've had people see it and and say, oh my gosh, my sister right here is going through breast cancer. Here, talk to this lady. And I've been able to hopefully help a lot of people. I'm also on three different hospital call lines where I am a counselor and I can get a phone call 24 seven. And a lot of them are women who are, and I actually had one man who was going through breast cancer and that has its own psychological impact because they, they really have a problem or have difficulty with society going, you mean you have what? And it's like, well, men have breasts and it's, you know, you can get cancer. That just happens. But I counsel them on chemotherapy, radiation, surgeries, all kinds of things, diet, nutrition, and everything rolled in. That is something I would never be able to tell five or 10 year old me, guess what? When you're this old, you're going to be 
telling people about your experiences and helping them make their own choices in their own care. Never would have guessed that. I mean, I wouldn't speak to people. Now I have perfect strangers calling me in the middle of the night saying, they want me to get surgery and I'm, or I'm terrified of radiation. What's going to happen with radiation? Will my teeth glow in the middle of the night? And uh, I actually joked with one that I said, well, the only thing that I had was the only side effect, really. I wasn't affected by the radiation in that a lot of people get uh, severe sunburn, essentially. Your, your skin is burned. But, um, and they do tangential for breast cancer, so they're not irradiating your entire torso. They're very, very specific in the area that they're irradiating. But I had, I had more energy than I've ever had in my entire life when I had radio, uh, radiation. So maybe I'm an alien or something. It, it was interesting. I should be in a sci-fi thriller. I explain everything to them because unless a doctor has personally gone through chemo, gone through radiation, had six surgeries in 12 hours, they don't know. They can, they can tell you their observations, but they don't really know. And it's nice to have people like me, myself, and others that have gone through whatever tell them how it's really going to be. And I, I don't sugarcoat it. And they want to hear the reality. Because at that point, I would have loved to have heard the reality from somebody else instead of having the reality be a surprise from moment to moment. And weren't you working on a book about that? Or did you write a book about I that? Have, I have a book in progress. It actually has a lot of different parts of my life, ranging from devastating and frightening, having cancer, or waking up in a hospital after a, an accident that you didn't remember, and having to fight to get your life back. And uh, a lot of funny things that are just absolutely hilarious that you say that could not be real that could not have really happened that is too funny it sounds like a movie and i have made notes of all these stories and camping trips and you know trips christmases or trips into a restaurant or reunions or whatever where something just ridiculously hilarious happened and i go people would like to read this because it's the whole thing, truth is funnier than fiction, actually, instead of stranger than fiction. And I'm hoping to put the very serious, my cancer and TBI, rolled in with the rest of my life, which has some incredibly hilarious, ridiculous moments that, that I, I guess would kind of temper the seriousness of almost dying. <laughs> but... Well, finding the humor, uh, the gallows humor particularly, is helpful for sure. But it sounds like you've got a lot of different points in your life that you've seen interconnectedness, synchronicity, fate, coincidences, whatever you want to call it, at work in your life. And without sugarcoating it, you know, can you go into some of that? Wow. Well, I've had... I don't know. I guess I look at it. I go, I said, I have, you know, five or six major points that were really, really traumatic, but they're so interlaced with great things, funny things, enjoyable things that I don't seem to tabulate them and say, oh, well, this was a really crummy thing. I'll put it in the crummy column. And this was a really good thing. I'll put it in the good column, especially since my TBI, when I wake up and I can stand up, 
and I can speak, it's one hell of a great day. I mean, after almost dying twice before, every day was a gift, no matter how crummy, you know, if you're stuck in the house with COVID or you're furloughed, whatever, you're still alive to deal with it. I thought about that a lot when I was in under treatment twice and then in the hospital recovering that a lot of people are like, but oh my God, this is so horrible. Whatever it is, you know, I, you know, somebody wrecked my car and now I don't have a car. Well, that is a problem. You have to get to work. You have to get to school. You have to go buy food, whatever, but you're still alive. You can figure out a way to get a car when you're facing death. You're like, uh, I'd love to be worried about getting a new car or a different car. I may be dying people and I'm not here to even deal with the day-to-day junk. So that can be a tremendous perspective. I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of rough things and I don't know how, I mean, looking back now, I'm like, well, I decided to step out of my little shell because I never made safety patrol, but I'm like, how can that affect somebody for a half a century? I guess it did. But also embracing every day, every minute, whether I'm running around being cranky and feeling guilty about being cranky because I'm stuck in the house or the unemployment website is a nightmare because it's so overloaded. But at the same time, I try and snap myself out of it and say, okay, you're still here. We're having a day. You wouldn't have had this day. The last day you would have had would have been February of 2008. You would have missed your daughter's graduation from high school, her graduations from colleges. You would have missed your youngest son's graduation from high school and going off to college and then changing majors 12 times anyway, (laughs) which is a learning process in itself. But uh, so, yeah, I've had, I've had a lot of trauma, but I don't, I don't know how it's necessarily linked except that it's just something else to get through. And you'll come out on the other side or you'll cross over. And then who knows? I've been in the gray or whatever you want to call it. The in-between, not quite the afterlife, but not quite this life a couple of times. And I like learning. So eventually one day I'll be ready to let go and say, okay, let's go explore this new thing. But I'm not ready yet. That's probably why I'm still here after getting whacked on the head and airlifted. I missed my helicopter ride. Dang it. I've got a bucket list. And my bucket list was to ride in a helicopter, but I was not specific enough. So you need to be specific on your bucket list and say, I want to ride in a helicopter, personally for me, piloted by my daughter, who can pilot a helicopter, not legally in Colorado, but, and I want to have my great camera with me and I want to be over you know, New Zealand or the Patagonian mountains or something, taking these awesome photos and conscious because the one helicopter ride that I did get, which was on my bucket list, was St. Anthony's Flight for Life. And I remember nothing. Not fair. <laughs> but nothing is fair. <laughs> well, I don't know what reminded me, but something that you said reminded me that we should talk about your love of how we met stories. <laughs> and let's talk about how you and Dan met. That was a fairly lengthy process. My daughter introduced us, but that was a long journey. She had gotten her undergrad degree at UNC, was working here in Colorado. And after um, she started saving money for a year or two because she knew she wanted to go for a master's, she wasn't sure what direction she wanted to go. Something 
triggered her decision. She makes very abrupt decisions. I think she background processes for quite, quite some time and then all of a sudden says, okay, this is it. I am going to blank. And one day she just called me up and she says, I've decided I'm going to grad school. And I said, great. I knew you were thinking about it and you were, you know, trying to determine what direction. And she says, I want to get a degree in environmental science or environmental studies. I've already looked up. There are seven fabulous universities that offer a, pro a degree program in a master's level. One is Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. And I said, ew, yuck. And she says, well, there's also one in like Mississippi or Louisiana. And I'm like, okay, we'll take Washington. She says, well, the point is it's one of the top rated ones for their master's program. And she, in 48 hours, she had signed up for the GRE and she crammed for it. She got it, bought an online course and just crammed for the GRE. And she found out that she needed two more prerequisites. So she took online classes at Red Rocks Community College because she had taken one kind of accounting and she needed to take another kind of accounting. She's like, okay, whatever. And she got her application in. She got her, she wrote her essay. She did a phone interview. She did, when within 72 hours, she ran down to town at the Auraria campus and she took the GRE. She got her results rushed, sent them. And then seven weeks later, she was in a program for her master's degree. So she moves to Olympia, Washington. And she uh, got out there. She met some people in the program, but being a master's, it's people come after work. They take a two, three hour long class at night and then everybody's really tired, goes home. And then she decided, well, I need to connect with people. I need to find some people. And she got online and she found a group that was into um, Norse history, Norse, I don't know what they, it was just their Norse heritage. And we had done Ancestry DNA and she knew that she was a combination of British and Norse. Oh. So she applied and it was a group where they, they didn't just let anyone join because they were going to run around and eat pizza and, you know, whatever. <laughs> it, was, it was more <laughs> of a serious group, but they looked into rituals of the Norse and the folklore of the Norse. And they would do big, big parties like the Norse and they would drink mead like the Norse. And anyway, she applied. And I remember her Skyping me and saying, I'm, I'm answering the questionnaire and I'm applying. I hope they let me in. Well, she got in. And one of the leaders of this group, she kept talking about this guy named Dan. Oh my God, mom, you've got to meet this guy, Dan. Oh my God, you've got to meet this guy, Dan. I'm like, Darren, you know how I feel about this. I'm, I'm like over the man thing. I had one. I'm done with it. He was a jerk. It's gone, whatever. And she's like, you need to see, you need to meet this guy, Dan. He's so much like, you guys have so much in common. I'm like, yeah, well, maybe we both have in common. We're over the whole thing. <laughs> and uh, finally, she, I drove her back. Then I helped drive her car back the next year. She came home for the summer. She worked here. Then I helped her drive her car back to Olympia. And we got there and she said, they're having, they're having a gathering. They're having a gathering. Let's go. And I'm like, okay, fine. We've just driven for a day and a half nonstop. I really feel like going <laughs> to a gathering. And she took me into this gathering and it was not just their group, but a whole bunch of Norse groups getting together. And she introduced me to this guy, Dan, and they had a bonfire going outside. 
in the yucky, drizzly, mist, overcast, cloudy, rain, funk of Washington. I've learned since that not every day is like that, but that day was very much like that. So they had a big bonfire going out there and people would go out and they were all around the bonfire. And so we're all standing around the bonfire and my daughter says, come on out, come on out. And then the leader of this gathering came out and she says, okay, everybody join hands. And my daughter being the sneaky little thing that she is, had been between me and Dan. She zipped around to my right, and when we had to join hands, I had to join hands with Dan. And as soon as I held his hand, I just went, oh, crap. I know where this is going to go. And I felt actual, tangible electricity in my hand go up my arm and then into my stomach. And I'm like, oh, boy. And uh, apparently he felt the same thing. And his first thought was, well, crap, I'm moving to Colorado now. So (laughs) we started a long distance relationship. And then eventually we were flying back and forth every six weeks. It was getting expensive and it was getting ridiculous because we were sick and tired of long distance. And he saw the handwriting on the wall with the company he was working with out there. And they are now, I don't know if they're completely dissolved, but they did tremendous layoffs and were bought out by someone else. And so he made the jump and he got a job in here in Colorado, um, working in the environmental waste industry, a green company. So he moved out here and then we didn't have to have a long distance relationship anymore. And it was all because of my daughter. Grr. <laughs> so how soon after the handholding did you guys talk about the, that you both had a physical reaction? I think we, I think that was a, that was late in, in September, probably the next January or February when we were talking on the phone a lot, because we would, every couple of nights we would talk on the phone after everyone else in the house was asleep or whatever, and uh, talk on the phone for hours, sometimes fall asleep on the phone, but yeah, it was a few months, and uh, after we had gotten really gotten to know each other over the phone and we were really good friends, which I think is key because in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh boy. And then I go, well, if nothing else, I will get a tremendous friend out of this. And so out of this tremendous friendship and tangible electricity going up my arm, it's like, yes, this is going to be more than friends. But uh, yeah, and it, it took us a while to get to where he was flying out here and I would fly back there and then he finally moved. So it wasn't an instant thing. Although my grandmother told me something that was really cute. It was at my grandfather's funeral. She and I were the last sitting in the limo when we arrived at the graveside because he had a, he had a traditional burial and everything like his generation kind of did. She looks over at me and she goes, you know, your grandfather and I only knew each other for six weeks before we got married. And I said, really? Whoa, weren't you hot to trot, Grandma? And she goes, she goes, well, we, we had just started dating. And in our town, she goes, you know, it's the Depression. And I said, yeah. But uh, she said, all of the town merchants wanted to do something to have a celebration. 
kind of like we have Elevation Celebration and Winterfest and everything, bring the community together. Well, it was the Depression. Nobody had anything. It was the Depression. It was just horrible. And they decided that what they could do is, hey, the first couple born, born, <laughs> the first couple married in June of that year would get a prize. And each one of the merchants, you know, there was not a lot of cash to be had. But they had inventory like the grocer would give you you know a pound of sugar well that was actually huge back then and or some coffee or you know five dollars worth of groceries in the grocery store and a toaster and you know an electric toaster no doubt how cool was that that was state-of-the-art and bed sheets and towels and you know, pots and pans and all this household things, everything that a, a brand new couple could use. And they decided they needed to win it. Hmm. So they got married June 1st at midnight 01. They woke the justice of the peace <laughs> and got married at midnight 01. And they got all that free stuff. And, but she was like, you know, I I've always told my grand, my children and grandchildren, Take a while. Make sure you know that it's the right one. And I go, well, Grandma, and all this time, you were a six-week woman? Hmm. And, uh, but they were married for well over 50 years before my grandfather died, and they would have been married for 250 years if they lasted that long. <laughs> That's a super cute story. So is that what sparked your interest in writing all the How We Met stories, or did you start that before? I actually started that before, but my grandparents' story was was one that was always in the back of my mind. And I go, I think people would like to hear that because there are so many schools of, well, you need to date for three to five years or, oh, you know, get, mar get married 48 hours after you know each other and then just spend the rest of your life learning about each other. And, you know, apparently it can work both ways. But yeah, I thought about my, my grandmother's story and I thought about other stories in my family that were just bizarre. My niece and nephew, or well, my nephew and then his wife met each other very strangely because my brother-in-law was working as a help desk person for Exide Batteries in Nebraska or Kansas. And he had a work email and everyone at the company had a work email. And one day he got called in by his boss and accused of sending horribly por pornographic emails to this girl who worked there, late young lady named Alicia McBride. And she was really cute. She was young enough to be his daughter. And he was absolutely mortified. This was not him, not anything he would ever do. And they got their IT people on it. And they found out that somebody had been randomly using people's emails. And because my brother-in-law used his email so infrequently he really didn't even realize it was he didn't realize it was happening but this person glommed onto his and kept using it and she had finally gone to management and said I'm gonna quit if this doesn't stop and they all were brought into a conference room and he met her and they talked it out and she realized when she came face to face with him that this was this was not him he would not do that he was telling the truth and he said you know you seem like a really nice person. Can we, you know, hang out at lunch here at work? So they 
they'd eat lunch in the cafeteria together a couple times. And then one day he said, I have a son you need to meet. <laughs> they have two boys now. He has his own business. They're living in Nebraska. So they met because his wife was accused or accused her future father-in-law of sending her pornographic emails, which were completely inappropriate at work. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, there's just so many of these stories. Well, that is definitely different. And I can't remember. Did Simon and I ever tell you the how we met story? Or if memory serves, we were going to, we had dinner to actually sit down and talk about it. And we talk about everything, but. <laughs> yeah. And Dan and I have mentioned it every once in a while. We go, you know, next time they come over, they've got to tell us that story. This is crazy. So we're still waiting. <laughs> that is funny. It might be the big climax to the end of COVID. Oh, wow. How about that? <laughs> okay, I'm way overselling it. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, I really appreciated that you were interested in those stories because I just hate when people say, you know, how'd you meet in a bar? How'd you meet online? How'd you meet at school? I'm like, no, there's more to it than that. Tell us the details. You know, why were you both at that school? Why were you both at that bar? what was actually happening, what song was playing, you know, whatever. And the people who skip over the juicy details are cheating everyone out of the good part. I know. And my, I mean, who would have thought my daughter working in Colorado would end up overnight deciding to go to Washington and then introduce me to somebody. I mean, it was just bizarre. And I keep, I keep telling her because she's looking for someone herself. And she's like, when is this going to happen? And I said, trust me, it will be so random and abrupt or in such strange ways. I said, you know how your cousin Mike and Alicia met? I said, and then you introduced me to Dan. I said, it will, it will happen. And she's like, I don't want to be as old as you. And I go, well, you know, I, I can't predict that one. <laughs> but yeah, it's looking back through all of the things that had to take place to get to a certain point is fascinating. And I've actually been in the middle of something that at the time was inconvenient or you're just going, really, why not again? And I go, huh, five years from now, I wonder what this will have led to. So, you know, you're on some interesting path that may lead to something great, but you don't know it until it happens and you look back. And how did you get that perspective? probably through analyzing myself continually, which is, I always put myself on a couch, but part of how I cope with something horrible or bad or inconvenient going on is I try and figure out, well, okay, how do I get out of this situation? What are my options? And then I say, well, if this happens, I can do this and this. If this happens, this and this. So I get all these options. So I'm like, okay, I can relax because if any of these happen, I've already thought out about how to deal with it. And I always sit there and I go, hmm, this will be done eventually. So it's not as bad as I think it is. And I try and put myself in the future looking back. Hmm. And I think part of that's just a coping mechanism, coping mechanism for things huge like cancer. But also, you know, you get, a, get in a car accident and you're like, oh, really? You know, you hit a deer on the way to work like my son did just a few days ago. And he's just like, really, why? I didn't need this now. And I, who knows? One major one, our entire family and my parents were scheduled to go to Yellowstone one winter. We had never gone to Yellowstone in the winter. 
and it is completely different and it is a phenomenal experience and i actually think i prefer it in the winter we had made reservations three years in advance because you have to and we were so looking forward to it and we had been getting packed and everything and my mom for some reason no idea why passed out in the bathroom in the middle of the night hit her jaw on the on the tile floor and broke her jaw so we didn't get to go everybody was devastated they were angry they were devastated they were hurt they were just completely bummed and my mom she got her jaw wired shut and she was okay she hadn't done any other damage and she got through the whole wiring of your jaw which i've been through cancer twice and the tbi and i just think about having my jaw wired shut and it freaks me out more than any of that but she got through it and she's fine today but we had to call and move all of our plans and everything we i explained what was going on and they pushed it out a year and my mom is absolutely loves christmas we were going over christmas and we had even done things where we we either had little notes or we took a picture of the gift we were going to give the person if it was too big to put in luggage you were limit very limited in your luggage because you have to go in in a via snow coach oh, so wow. they have you each person gets so many cubic inches of luggage space and they strap it all to the top of the uh, snow coach but my mom just loves Christmas. She lives for Christmas and it's in, it's actually contagious because she gets so into it that I actually enjoy it because she's so into it. But she was devastated. And I was thinking, okay, we're all disappointed. But maybe, and this is the question I have asked myself now for years, when something terrible or disappointing happens, maybe it's not about me. Why do we always assume it's about us? I thought, well, the universe probably has more idea what's going on globally than I do. And I told everyone, I said, you know, this may have not been about us. There might have been a family who's the patriarch of the family or a little child with leukemia or something. They were going to have, they wanted to go to Yellowstone for Christmas one last time as a family before this person died. But you can't get reservations on the, at the drop of a hat. We had to make them two or three years of it in advance. I said, there was probably a family out there that needed that reservation and the space that we were taking in all the rooms. And they called up and it was a miracle to them that there was an availability. Oh, we just had a cancellation. We have space for your family of 10. And they got to go on that vacation before some horrific thing happened or whatever it was. And so I just said, it's maybe this isn't about us. And it gave everybody a perspective. My mom still had her jaw wired shut, which was very unpleasant, but I think it helped her get through the Christmas thinking, you know, oh, we were supposed to be there in front of the beautiful fire and doing this and that. And I said, you know, there's maybe there's a family there celebrating with their eight-year-old who has leukemia and he's not going to have another Christmas, but they're going to remember this one. So I always have to ask, maybe it's not about me. When I had cancer, I thought maybe it's not about me now. Maybe I'm going to be able to counsel somebody else or tell somebody else something later about it. Even now, I don't know, it may not have anything to do with cancer, but telling them my story might help them make some kind of a decision or might impact them so that their life is better. I don't know, I'm not the universe. So I just assume that the universe knows better than I. <laughs> well, you have a fantastic perspective, obviously. And I'm wondering if you have any 
stories or books or authors or whatever that helped you get to be where you are and who you are and give you that perspective of the universe? I can't point out a single author, but I read so much. I'm sure it was more of a conglomeration of historical fiction characters or even fictional characters that I could connect with that kind of had me at that and Mishala knowing that everything he was doing was probably for naught. Once he got his doctorate, he was going to go to the Iranian army and probably die. I don't know. That just started to give me a different perspective. But I like so many different authors and I like everything from science fiction and fantasy to murder mysteries to documentaries. And it seems that every it's it's part of the formulation of a lot of books that there's a moral or something in there. And I really connect and empathize with characters in most of the books that I read, sometimes way beyond what I should. So I don't get a full night's sleep because I have to read the entire book to, <laughs> to the conclusion. Probably, I mean, some of all of it. I love Will Lamore and I like his characters and uh, I relate to some of those. And I like, you know, the different time periods and he paints such a tremendous picture. I love Patricia Cornwell because she actually does murder mysteries that. I think right at the end that I, oh, oh yeah, that has to be it. That has to be the person who did it. And almost every time she gets me, it's someone else. So I like the challenge. And then I read books like The Shack that I'm reading right now. A friend at work loaned it to me. I had absolutely no idea what it was about. And apparently it's a movie also because a friend of mine said, oh, I saw that movie. Well, I've never seen the movie. So the book is fantastic to me. Yeah, it's amazing. It's the first book that I've read that takes the idea of spirituality and God and the universe and everything. And it approaches it from such a neutral environment that I can accept all of it. And it's not cohesive. Some of it actually, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's rolling in Buddhism and Hinduism and atheism and Christianity and all of these things. And it's combining them all. And you just sit back and go, yeah, that all makes sense. And they're disparate. They should not be able to all make sense combined into one. But I think it's fascinating. And it really makes me think because I was like, wow, this is interesting. Oh, yeah, I can see his bitterness over that. Uh-huh. Yeah. His wife is really annoying. She's just so, so much of a Bible thumper. How could you stand that? She just won't shut up. And then later, the writer turns the plot and everything and introduces these characters. And then you find out one of the characters is Jesus Christ. And I'm like, whoa. And I was actually liking the character and you know, the main character in the book. And I'm like, wait a minute, doesn't like the proselytizing, but yet actually does like the person it's it really makes you think and i love books that make me think and i like books that make me question everything about everything because that's one thing you learn as you get older and you almost die and then you keep going is nobody knows everything about everything can always learn something i've taken classes from people and i show up to the class and they look and they go hey what are you doing here you know all this stuff and i go i don't know all of anything i go you can always learn something and i typically do well i Love talking to you. You are my favorite local person. <laughs> Being the only I, one, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> wait, what'd you say? You said, and I go, well, the only local person so far. So no. Oh, no, 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 no. What I meant was regardless of podcast, oh, you're my okay, favorite local okay. person. You're my favorite Coloradan. Let's put it that yeah, way. I'm pretty, pretty uh, insane. 
but uh, mm -hmm. that's me. And ever since I was 19, I don't care. I mean, before being hospitalized and everything, before uh, before breast cancer, you know, you go in for your yearly physical, you know, and they give you this lovely thing to wear, this robe gown thing. And I'd be like, oh my God, really? And, you know, after you have breast cancer, you know, anybody walks in the door and you just flash them. Okay, here they are, whatever. And and that's kind of how my life has been since I like cracked open the shell at 19. And, and it's like, I always tell people, I go, my life is an open book. I said, and I live in a small community. I could never do anything nefarious and get away with it anyway. Mm -hmm. I can't even think that up. But I go, why? I go, no, it's just out there. <laughs> <laughs> and it is because I love knowing people that you get what you see. And I'm like, well, why would I want to be any anything other than what I'm expecting from anyone else? So you get what you see, you know, and including criticism. People come and they go, hey, did you know that you're doing blah, blah, blah? Oh, my God, really? No, I didn't know that. I didn't know they took that that way. And then I'm like, get out in the open and get it taken care of and get on with it. I like people like that. That's like you. You're you don't have a hidden agenda. <laughs> And a lot of people do. And I'm crazy on the outside and crazy on the inside, but sincere and honest and a lot of other things. So still crazy. <laughs> well, like I said, you're my favorite local person and I've enjoyed talking to you. And this is the tip of the iceberg and we're going to have to have a part two. Oh, cool. I mean, don't know when, but one day. Well, I, I know. <laughs> I love talking and I love, I don't know, I guess talking once I started counseling people, I really realized I like when talking helps someone or helps them think through something or it just triggers something for them to come to their own conclusion conclusion, or figure something out. Because I don't have all the answers, but I can tell them my perspective and maybe they can glean something from it and then use it themselves and keep going. You never know, you know, you plant a seed and you never know what's going to trigger somebody to find a cure for COVID or, you know, make a great change in their life or, you know, get sober, whatever, or something really important like help animals. <laughs> well, I hope that one day when people actually listen to this when I'm finished editing and it's live that people will reach out and say, how do I get a hold of Annette? I want to talk to her about my cancer or whatever, and we'll be able to hook people up that way. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. I meet a lot of people who see my arm tattoo and then they, they go, oh my gosh, I'm also a survivor. And that you have an instant, instant connection. It, it's neat because I mean, everybody should have a connection with something. I mean, we're all going through the human experience. Well, and that's it. I think we all do. And I, that's one of the things I want to uncover through these episodes. But most people don't ask or they're too wrapped up in their own thing. And so they don't try to find that connection or whatever, you know, that if you just put yourself out there, you will find that connection. Or they're painfully shy. Mm -hmm. I wish I could tell people what made me completely snap out of it, but I'm really glad that I did. Well, me too. And I thank you for your time, and we will do this again. Yes, I would love to. Well, that was Annette Aldrich. And I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again, that when you talk to people, you find out how interesting they are, what great stories they have. And every time I talk to someone on this podcast, I just want to spend more and more time picking into their life and history. I think it's awesome. So thank you so much for joining me each and every episode on Revel Revel, the podcast.